Father, we thank you for the message that preceded your arrival, that we heard from your word proclaimed even last week in Isaiah chapter 40, that there would be a voice crying in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord. And so the mountains of our sin would be leveled and the valleys of wickedness would be raised and all that would like to stand by the enemy's intent between your purposes and the invasion of the human experience with the plan of redemption was leveled before the predestined plan of Almighty God. And during that 400 and even 600 year wait from the times of proclamation to the time of your revival, there were the faithful, the remnant who remained and wondered, is today the day? And on that morning, in that, on that night, that glorious night, when you came, Lord Jesus, from the womb of a virgin, and your birth was announced by the hosts of heaven, the silence of the prophetic word was broken by Yahweh Sabaoth, by the eternal Son, who cried forth, That prophecy was fulfilled, his first cries from the manger. And for this reason we are here today, because Christ Jesus our Lord came and was born, lived and died, was buried and rose, was ascended and reigning, and secured for us in his redemptive work, final salvation for all who place their trust in him. Now as we turn to his word, We pray that you would open our hearts and write thereupon the eternal message of the gospel, echoing forth from the pages of Scripture all the way back to even the Psalms. We thank you for the treasures that we have contained in your holy word. I pray that we would treasure them in our hearts, even as your servant Mary did so long ago. That you might be glorified and your people might be equipped and the Holy Spirit might see fit to use even this day and these moments we have to further us towards kingdom expansion and conquest for your great name. We thank you for your praise and glory made manifest through us, weak and fallen vessels made righteous by the blood of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a glorious opportunity we have to turn our hearts to the Lord and fix our attention on eternal truth. Turn with me, if you would, in your scriptures to Psalm 76. Psalm 76 will be our passage today, our text, verses 1 through 12, under this title, Our Warlord. Our Warlord. This title might seem striking at first glance, but... It seemed fitting as I looked upon this psalm and saw that God is worshipped on account of His militant exploits in these 12 verses. And it reminds us of the triumphal campaign of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who declared victory over the worst and most formidable enemies of all that had waged a battle campaign against our very souls and were successful even to the point of rendering us spiritually dead until the resurrecting, overcoming power of the Holy Spirit raised us to spiritual life and regeneration for all who are in Christ this day. And so our warlord, Jesus Christ, has declared victory over the spoils of our own souls, and now we are, as we say, the rewards of His sufferings. Psalm 76 anticipated these moments of gospel truth so long ago. The aim of this morning's message is to realize from these pages and to heed the triumphal exploits of Christ as a call to worship. May we heed from Psalm 76 the exploits of Christ prophesied here as a call to worship, to glorify the Lord for what He has done in triumphing over sin, especially and the devil in the gospel. Would you stand out of reverence and fear for the Holy Word of God this morning with your Bible open to Psalm 76 and let us behold these immortal, infallible words together. Our psalm comes to us this day under the title, To the Choir Master, with Stringed Instruments, a Psalm of Asaph, a Song. Verse 1, In Judah God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. 
his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Selah. Verse 4, Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When the Lord, when God rose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, Selah. Verse 10, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Who cuts off the spirits of princes who is to be feared by the kings of the earth? This is the word of God. You may be seated. To illustrate an occasion appropriate for this psalm, I would like to draw your attention to a parallel text this morning in 2 Kings 19. So turn there with me if you would, and we'll see an event in Israel's history that would be worthy of this song for sure. In this psalm today, Psalm 76, is the fourth in a grouping of ten under the authorship of Asaph. And it brings us worship themes inspired by triumph in war. Worship themes inspired by victory, by triumph in war. Here in Psalm 76, we find the enemies of our God, prophetically declared in and His Christ, magnified, magnifying His wisdom and strength as they are conquered by the King of Kings. Did you catch that? We find here that the enemies of God and His Christ, the enemies of God in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, actually serve to magnify the wisdom and strength, the conquering power, the exploits of our warlord, as it were, as each of them are conquered by our King of Kings, by our triumphal warrior. It is certainly a fruitful meditation to consider the content of this song, and we will, but it would perhaps yield a richer understanding still and appreciation of Psalm 76 to visit occasions in history, especially redemptive history, for which this hymn was written. We will touch upon two of those today. Two occasions that we will consider alongside, briefly, alongside Psalm 76. One is a historic, that's the occasion, that's 2 Kings chapter 19. The other a prophetic uh, occasion, and for your further turning in Scripture for a parallel text, consider Revelation 19 as an example. We'll go there later on in the message. But at this moment in 2 Kings, we find Israel in their history victorious over an enemy. They're victorious only in and through their God. Thus, this is an appropriate song. Psalm 76 is an appropriate song to commemorate this occasion, I submit to you, as the defeat of the Assyrians is accomplished upon Hezekiah's intercession. Let's notice the categories which structure this text, categories in the text of 2 Kings which also appear as structure points in Psalm 76. So I'll note them as we touch upon this narrative briefly. So in 1 Kings 19, the first thing I want you to notice is that the enemy king, the false authority, the principality and power who has declared war on the plan, the will of God, and the people of God, he has defied the covenant dominion. There is a realm, there are conditions, there is a place that is sacred and set apart. It's the dominion, it's the realm, it's the kingdom, it's the reign, it's the capital city. It's the headquarters, it's the seat of authority. It's the place of distinctive point of reference to identify, to set apart, to champion, to make known, and to proclaim the word and worth and works of God. And in this domain, this covenant domain, 
It cannot be appreciated without outside of relationship. And woe to anyone who would defy that realm. But Sennacherib, like an idiot, seeks to do exactly that. Who is he? An Assyrian king? Listen to what happens in verse 8. And Rabbishakeh, or something like that, returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna. For he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Terkah, king of Cush, Behold, he has set out to fight against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, and thus entering into this cast of characters, the king of Israel, Hezekiah, receives this message from an enemy king. And here it is in verse 10. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do you see the defiant language? This false authority, this enemy king is saying, your God is no match for my conquering power. He's defying the covenant domain. So don't let your God deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will be given into the hand, will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Verse 11, behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations of my fathers destroyed Gozan, Haran, Rezpah, and the people of Eden who were in Teslar? Of course, the implication is, what makes you think you'll be any different than the dominoes of these weaker nations that have fallen under my conquering hand? If their gods couldn't help them, isn't it foolish to assume your God will? And so he defies the covenant domain. Where is the king of Hamath, he goes on, the king of Erpad, the king of the city of Zeraphim, the king of Hena, the king of Iva, listing the exploits of his conquering ambitions. Each of these cities, each of these kings, having, having fallen before his sword. So that's a category. The enemies of God seek to defy his covenant domain. Second category comes up in our text. Let's call this the decree of supreme government Excuse me, that's number three. Second, let's consider this one as the posture of the people illustrated in Hezekiah's appeal to the name of the Lord. So notice how Hezekiah receives this news and what he does next. What position or posture does he take? Is it one of defiance? Is it one of preparing a superior force, of gathering technology and warriors, and frantic preparation, anxiety, and rushing, and trusting to, rushing to and trusting in the sword? No, his posture is more godly than this. Verse 14, Hezekiah receives the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. This is where you go when you are in trouble. You bring your concerns. You bring the fearful situation, as it were, and you spread it before the Lord. In his house. You see, Hezekiah had respect, reverence, faith in the covenant domain. And that's where exactly where he went to the hub, the headquarters, the epicenter, the place of God's dwelling. Emmanuel, here to dwell, the place of God's dwelling with man. Where do we bring our concerns? Where do we bring our anxieties? We bring them to the place of God's dwelling with man. We spread our concerns before Emmanuel. If we take Hezekiah's example to heart, we spread our concerns before the Lord. This is the posture of the faithful. And so he does this, verse 15. He prays before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You see, his confession is the polar opposite of the wicked king. You have made, in fact, he says, Heaven and earth in verse 15. Verse 16, he then beseeches the Lord, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, and therefore they were destroyed. He makes his final appeal, verse 15. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. He makes his appeal to the glory 
into the name of the Lord as he brings his request. Number three, there is a decree of supreme government issued from heaven. A decree of supreme government. Answer comes, the answer comes from glory in the following verses. Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib king of Assyria I have heard. This is the word of the Lord, or this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. And then he goes on to catalog the sovereign decree, the supreme government, the superiority of the God of heaven. He closes these words, which are too long to cover at the moment, by saying, verse 27, 28, But I know you're sitting down, and you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me, again, this is a message to the wicked king, and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Like a fish hook, like a lure, stuck in the mouth of a king. Could you imagine how ridiculous and how humiliating that circumstance would be? If, let's say, you had an enemy, and you had a fishing rod, and a big musky lure on the end, and you cast it, and you caught him right in the lip, and it was like this, He's being pulled forward and you reel him in and the pain and the anguish and the, just this sense of being caught red-handed in his wickedness and brought to his knees in the shocking turn of events and this extreme pain shooting through him. The same you know, sensitive part of the body like the nose. You can imagine if someone just drove a nail through your nose and then wrapped some wire around it, hitched it to a chain and then put it on the back of his truck and started to drive. What are you going to do? as long as the truck isn't driving any faster than you can run, you are going to follow that truck as fast as you can. And this is what the Lord does. He reduces the enemy king to a fool and demonstrates his superiority over him by humiliating him with his sovereign hand, hooking his nose with a bit in his mouth and turning him back the way by which he came. No one crosses the threshold of the covenant domain and mocks God and ultimately gets away with it. And this is a theme worthy of our worship. Our warlord is victorious. The final theme that I want you to notice is the fallout of the enemy. We've touched upon it in part, but notice what ha eventually happens. In other words, you can ask the question, how does the Lord place a hook in the mouth and turn this king and his intentions around? Verse 35 and following record this. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib king of Assyria departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch his god, Adramelech and Sherezer his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esaradon, his son, reigned in his place. And thus, the enemy's fallout was incurred. Now, I submit to you, if you're looking for a song to sing, after these events happened, let's say you woke up, and the night before you were concerned about the fate of your country, and the morning after you fell asleep, you wake up and you hear the news, 185,000 mighty warriors slain in one fell sloop, swoop overnight by an angelic messenger and as soon as the king receives the news his own sons slay him in his capital while he's worshiping his false god he just used to taunt you with days before when he said in the strength of my false god i've conquered this whole long list of people what response ought you give in light of these events i submit to you turn back to psalm 76 our song of Asaph this day fits perfectly. In Judah, God is known. You mess with Judah, you mess with him. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. His dwelling place is in Zion. Let's consider Psalm 76 in light of some of this context under this heading. In appreciating salvation, Asaph calls us to consider those four main points I've already listed. Number one covenantal domain. In appreciating salvation, 
in events like the one I just described, from the scriptures in, uh, in that account from 2 Kings, in appreciating that kind of deliverance, those moments of salvation, most of all our salvation from our sin, Asaph calls us in Psalm 76 to consider covenantal domain. Notice there are location terms, proximity, a place that he describes. He uses four terms in parallel in verses 1 and 2. He says, first of all, in Judah, God is known. The place of God's dwelling is described as Judah, but further terms are used. His name is great in Israel. That would be identity number two, Judah, Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, number three. His dwelling place in Zion. These are terms that describe the covenant domain of God. Judah, Israel, Salem, Zion. These are terms of covenantal proximity. Their spatial language, their language of a place or an area defined by certain parameters. I submit to you they symbolize a state where, a state or condition where the terms, the prerequisite uh, conditions are met for reconciled communion and favor in the presence of our holy God. If you dwell in Judah, Israel, Salem, or Zion, that means you are in covenantal proximity. That means your relationship with the Lord has been reconciled. That means in this symbolic and picture language that you are welcomed into His presence because you have a high priest that provides a sacrifice for you, that earns you and maintains your good standing in the community. This is accomplished because of this kind of intercession where sacrifice is made, payment for sin is satisfied. It's a place of intercession, a place of sacrifice, glory, revelation, worship, communion, feasting, joy, Union, memorial, and that abiding sense of assurance and security of salvation with walls so thick and high that if any pagan king were to cross them, he could face the death of 185,000 soldiers in a single night. This is Judah. This is Israel. This is Salem. This is Zion. This is our salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. No weapon formed against us will prosper. Why? Because we are hid in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because He has assured the state of our salvation by establishing the terms and fulfilling them in Himself by the sacrifice of His own flesh, paving that way as we have read in Hebrews, through the curtain, the torn veil, into the holy place of God Almighty. you notice the term Salem. Salem reminds us of the, ter- of the word Jerusalem. Salem was the ancient designation for Jerusalem, and it meant peace. This idea of peace, even with Christ's arrival in the incarnation, peace on earth and goodwill to men, announces, is announced by the heavenly host when Emmanuel, God with us, the terms and conditions of union with God are starting to come to fruition and reality so that the covenant of God with man will be established in the perfect high priest entering into our condition and satisfying the absolute to the absolute detail, everything that is necessary for us to be reconciled to a holy God, and the announcement is peace has come. The Prince of Peace has come. Peace on earth and goodwill to men. This meant that we are no longer, if we accept Him as our Savior, this baby born of Mary, we are no longer at war with God, who has declared war on all His enemies. But we, in Him, have already had our sin atoned for and paid for by Jesus Christ. We are no longer at war with the God who has declared war unto the unconditional surrender of every last enemy. So how are our enemies defeated? They are defeated in Christ. Salem is also the place where the ancient record reminds us that Melchizedek, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, was priest and king. Melchizedek is listed as a forerunner of Christ as a prophetic, maybe even uh, a picture of 
a Christophany, as it were, an appearance of Christ, some might think, in the Old Testament that illustrates to us in such vivid form who Christ would be. Hebrews 6, 19 through 7, 1 gives us this picture of Melchizedek's realm. He was king of Salem. And to him, Abraham offered tribute. And to him, Abraham looked for his priestly role and rule. Melchizedek's realm as prophetic forerunner of the high priest of Christ is described as Salem. This is the covenantal domain. This is Judah, Israel, Salem, Zion pictured in Psalm 76. So what is special about this place? In this place, God is known, in Judah that is. In this place, His name is great. His abode has been established and His dwelling place is in Zion. He is known, His name is great, His established, His abode, His dwelling place is there. And all of these pictures conspire together to give us a geographic metaphor. It's not a physical place, it's a spiritual place. The geographic terms, the spatial proximity if you will, the point on the map serves to illustrate this. It pictures the specific parameters of knowledge and relationship. That is to say, in the covenant domain, we hear the righteousness of God announced forth in His law. We hear how we can be justified in Christ through the revelation of His Holy Word made flesh in the incarnate Son. We have revelation of the glories of His work in history, in providential history, and His plans for the providential future, how the past was established perfectly and executed according to His holy will. His decree unfolds according to His providence and time, moving forward toward a glorious future where all eventually serves to give Him maximal glory in heaven and the new heavens and new earth one day. Where can we know this? Where can we understand? Where are these things made known? Where are they made clear? Well, the geographic metaphor tells us they're in Judah, in Israel, in Salem, in Zion, the place where we have peace, communion, knowledge, understanding, revelation, interaction with the Holy God. That is to say, they are met in the gospel, these standards and these conditions. And Christ is known in the truth of His Holy Word. And He has been made to known to us by the miraculous touch of the Holy Spirit, burning these things upon our souls as the Word has had its effect on our own spirits. Turn with me to Revelation 19. We talked about a historical occasion for the use of Psalm 76. And now I want to point to a prophetic occasion for the use of Psalm 76. In other words, in Revelation 19, we see another victorious campaign for which Psalm 76 would serve as a fitting hymn and anthem to commemorate. In Revelation 19:11, we read of the covenantal domain of one, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in the linen, white, in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. This is a victorious picture of the covenant domain realized in the, in the future where Jesus Christ, featured there in, as the sacrificial lamb, the price having been paid in His own blood shed to redeem for Himself victorious citizens of Zion, draped in pure and holy raiment that is given to them upon His death on Calvary and so clothed in His righteousness they populate Zion, Israel, Judah, Salem. And so Psalm 76 is a fitting anthem. As we see in Judah, God is known. And then in Revelation 19, He has made Himself known in Christ. His name is great in Israel. His name is 
so great it's been exalted above every other name in the name of Jesus Christ. His abode has been established in Salem. Christ has come as Prince of Peace and so we dwell in the gospel with him and his dwelling place is in Zion. Again, that place of sacrifice where the terms are met for reconciliation. So in appreciating salvation, Asaph calls us to, to consider the covenant domain. Secondly, he calls us Major point this morning to consider enemy fallout. It says in verse 3 in Psalm 76, there, that is in Zion, around the threshold of his realm, against any enemy, if, um, that is to say, who would threaten or declare war against him, it says in verse 3, there he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war, Selah. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. Consider the fallout of the enemy. This comprehensive victory touches every aspect that we would think would threaten us. This picture of manifold victory, of complete and total victory, is pictured in verse 3. Notice there's every category of weapon uh, that would have been, you know, common at the time. There he broke the flashing arrows, so the arrows of the enemy proved ineffective as they snapped in Almighty God's hands. There he also broke the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war, so not arrow, not shield, not sword. None of the weapons of war, none of the implements of the enemy, no matter how brightly polished, no matter how fearsomely gilded with the standards of their exploits, it didn't matter if the Sennacherib king of Assyria had carved into the shield of every one of his soldiers that long list of kingdoms that he had conquered, that flashing shield was curled up like a taco in the hands of the Lord and thrown over his shoulder as soon as he dared approach the threshold of the covenant domain. This is the fallout of the enemy that is pictured in this language. It's pictured elsewhere in Isaiah 54, 17. It's a favorite passage for many of us. No weapon formed against us shall prosper is the promise from Scripture. That is to say, if you are safe, if you are within the safekeeping and in good standing in the covenant of redemption, as it were, or in the covenant of grace, as it were, then under in this place of salvation, where your sin is atoned for, and you and by faith believe that it has been satisfied by the blood, shed blood of the Messiah, pictured in the sacrifices in the old covenant, then no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Note the complete and total and utter destruction, the fallout of the enemy is pictured in Psalm 76 in this imagery which invokes absolute comprehensive victory. The flashing arrows broken, the shield crumpled like so much paper, the sword shattered as brittle metal fragments sparkle through the air as it touches it dares to touch the realm of Almighty God and all the weapons of the war lie like useless kindling strewn across the battlefield of our warlord's exploits. This is the fallout of the enemy. Uh, next we see the ferocious warrior's enemies despoiled. What does the word despoiled mean? Well, you know what the word spoil is. It can be the things that are left over, the spoils, the extras. Uh, if you, if say a battle campaign went through and decimated, killed everybody in the city, and then you went into the city and here's a store of grain, here's a mound of gold, here's an empty house, uh, here's fertile fields. All these things would be the spoils of war. They are the collateral uh, you know, that is left over after an enemy has been destroyed. When the Hebrews left the Egypt, Egypt, they took spoils of their campaign with them. God had defeated Pharaoh by his plagues and by the manifestation of his wonders. Pharaoh bowed the knee after the death of his firstborn son, and the people gave gold and treasure to the Israelites. They despoiled them in that action. They took these spoils of God's conquering on their behalf with them as evidence of his mighty work 
and deliverance among them. Later they failed him in melting it down and fashioning it into an idol. But those spoils of war were meant to be evidence of God's triumphs among them, the fallout of the enemy. Notice in our passage today how the spoils of war heap up to the glory of the conquering king. Verse 4, glorious are you more majestic than the mountains of prey. And I'm told and this idiom refers to like mountains or piles or caches of, of, that have been assembled of uh, that which can be exploited and apprehended, the spoils of victory as it were. That would be the sense there of mountains of prey, that which can be grabbed on and exploited by the warrior, the prey that he pursues. And, and it goes further, verse 5, the stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. No matter how strong and formidable the enemy seemed, and no, no matter how impressive his armor, all those things were just greater blessings. When the Israelites went out and uh, you know, robbed the corpses of all of this gear after 185,000 had been slaughtered, that's the picture. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. From the cold, dead hands of the enemy of our God is rested the weapons of our destruction, and they are now fitted in the hand of the people of God to further their own exploits, the very tools that the enemy used against the Lord are turned against him and future enemies. That's the picture. This is the complete, utter fallout where the ferocious are despoiled as the Lord marches forward. We see this is a prophetic picture as well that is the complete fallout of enemies in the New Testament. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, a familiar text, but an appropriate one. Again, I submit to you to consider as we sing Psalm 76. In 1 Corinthians 15, there is a record of the exploits of our warlord Christ in the gospel, as it were. It says, speaking of his victories, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead in verse 20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until... He has put all his enemies under his feet. Christ will reign until he has utterly and completely despoiled every last enemy right down to death itself. This is the prophetic occasion for Psalm 76 where we can sing with Asaph as our Lord has conquered us in the gospel and continues to conquer souls for the kingdom. We see this picture recurring again prophetically in Revelation 19. Revelation 19, 15 through 18. Notice the exploits in the, as the enemy is routed. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Who's in view here? You remember. He's the one faithful and true whose name is the word of God. Indeed, Christ our Lord with eyes flames of fire and on his head many crowns. Evidence of his authority and superiority. On his robe and on his thigh, further in verse 16, it describes him. His name is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Notice his despoiling campaign. When I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. That's a devastating picture of the utter annihilation of the enemy as the landscape of battle is strewn with corpses and becomes a feeding frenzy for birds of prey. The vultures circle over the spoils of war. Jesus Christ our great and conquering Lord will in the end reduce to a pile of corpses even the greatest enemies that stood against him and us. It's just a matter of God's perfect time. Thirdly, in appreciating salvation, Asaph calls us to consider supreme government. In Psalm 76, we read, 
verse 7. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is aroused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. There is a reverence that is demanded when God reveals himself in his governing authority. Verse 7, you are to be feared. The absolute, undeniable rule and reign of our Lord Christ commands the fear of the masses. You remember Hebrews 12, 18 through 21, we studied in recent weeks. That's where God reveals himself in his power to judge on Mount Sinai. Do you remember the mountain enveloped in smoke? Lightning interrupts the gloom and tempest and darkness with intermittent flashes of blinding light. An earthquake shakes the ground and anyone who crosses the line of untouchable perfection is to be stoned or javelined to death. Why? Because they are in the presence of a God who in his revelation and power to judge demands reverence, worship, and respect. And thus this picture is one of holiness and terror. That's right. Holy terror before the Lord, before whom you will stand one day. And if you are in your sin, you come not to Mount Zion, not to Salem, not to Judah, not to Israel. You come to Mount Sinai with shakes, with the power of God to destroy. And you have only eternal judgment to look forward to. This is a circumstance that commands fear, respect, awe, reverence, a sense of sobriety and an eyes-wide awareness of God's absolute authority, His supreme government. It demands a reverence. We go on to see how He establishes these things. God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. The Psalms go on to say in chapter 89, verse 14, that righteousness and justice are indeed the foundations of His throne. When God returns... He brings order. He brings justice. Wrongs are punished. Rights are rewarded and uh, virtues are rewarded as it were. Everything is orderly and in its proper place and perspective. In the new heavens and new earth, there is no more sin in fact. And every unrighteous act that preceded the time of his kingdom's full consummation will be judged with perfect proportional uh, uh, punishment in hell eternal. And all things will be righted. But the humble will escape hell because they have surrendered to their king. They've admitted their weakness, their inability to save themselves, and they've, they've thrown themselves at his mercy that's provided only in Jesus Christ. And thus, they will reap the promise that is declared in Matthew 5.5, 5, the meek shall inherit the earth. That is, the meek shall inherit Judah, Israel, Salem, Zion. The meek shall inherit these conditions. That will soon arise as the supreme government of God works its way out, correcting the sins of history and bringing perfect judgment, saving the humble of the earth and establishing His kingdom to perfection. The kingdom of God will come, is coming. Both are true. It has arrived and it is arriving as it were. It's been effectively established because Christ's work is eternal and sufficient. But the evidence of these things are coming into view and coming into fullness and fruition and prophecy as time races to catch up with the inevitable decree of the Almighty God who is supreme in His governance. We see the prophetic occasion for Psalm 76 where the supreme government of God is celebrated in Revelation 19. Listen to the picture of the ungodly authorities and how they are dealt with. In verse 19, Revelation 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured, with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword. That came from the mouth of him, again, that's our Lord Christ, who is sitting on the horse, and all the birds gorge were gorged with their flesh. And so we see the supreme government of God dealing rightly, swiftly, decisively with his enemies, represented by this beastly governments of earth and the false prophets 
That is, the ideas, the philosophies, the false religions, the wickedness, the, uh, all of the evil that man comes up with to justify his wickedness and rebellion. So thus we see in appreciating salvation, Asaph calls us to consider these things, covenantal domain, enemy fallout, supreme government, and finally, posture of the people. In closing, in our psalm today, in verses 10 through 12, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. First of all, the posture of the ungodly, even who are wrathful and incensed and outraged against the true authority, the one true God of heaven, their wrath becomes a tool in his hand. It says, the wrath of men shall praise you. What does that mean? It says, the wrath, the remnant of wrath of these types, you will put on like a belt. What is in view here is that the wrath that the men brought, the wickedness that was turned against the Lord, his motivation to oppose the God, the God of glory serves ultimately to praise him. Man's wrath serves to glorify God when he defeats him by his superior authority and superior ability to declare victory over his enemies. It's almost like a scalp. Uh, that might be a kind of a graphic picture, but there's, you know, the Bible is not a stranger to graphic pictures. After all, we just discussed vultures feeding on the flesh of God's enemies. We'll consider a warrior, you know, a pl on the plains of, you know, hundreds of years ago in our land here. And he would be fighting another warrior. And the rage of the warrior who faced him, once he was defeated, was hung up like a trophy, as it were. That scalp served to show that the, uh, the greater glory of the conquering warlord, as it were. And thus we see in God's overruling providence that the posture of his warriors only serves to advance his great name and to manifest his glory over across the landscape of history, in fact, to every nation, tribe, and tongue. The second posture we see of the people is a posture of worship. In verse 11, all these events serve as a call to worship. Remember the aim of this message, that we might heed the triumphal exploits of Christ as a call to worship. The triumphal exploits of the Lord, even in His covenant history with His people at this time in Asaph's day, served as a call to worship. So thus he says in verse 11, in light of what's happened, that is to say, make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around Him bring gifts to Him who is to be feared. Make your vows. Commit yourself to Him. Reestablish your dependence on Him. Confess the truth that He is your Lord and you are His subject. Bring Him gifts, thank offerings. Look and, and search in your valuables and treasured possessions to see what you might be able to bring to our conquering Lord. As you consider this, your mind might flash forward to another kind of suzerain tri tribute. What is a suzerain tribute? Well, a suzerain was a greater king, the superior lord, to whom worship, fealty, faithfulness, tribute, taxes were due. And that's kind of the picture that we see here. Tribute is offered to the greater king. But the tribute is not done so upon compulsion, but it's done out of joyful worship. Because our king is a special kind. He comes as Pastor Kenny revealed from Isaiah 40 to us from the word of God last week as king, yes, but also as shepherd. He is revealed to us in the tenderness of one who would cradle a lamb in his bosom and the authority of one who rules nations as with a rod of iron. What is the response to a king like this? I thought about it. I was moved last week as I listened to the glory of God champion from the pages of prophecy in Isaiah 40 and I thought to myself all week he is our king he is our shepherd how might I praise him Psalm 76 is a good example of a song worthy of a king like this and there's examples of his servants praising him through history and of course this time of year can't help but remember one that is recorded for us in Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 2 there's news that a king is born after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. From this celestial event, a star in heaven, the wise men, the magi, as it were, received a call to worship. And so they did what Asaph said we ought. They brought a gift to bring to him. Of course, the enemy king heard this. He tried to encroach upon the covenantal domain. And eventually he was utterly and completely destroyed and he was even thwarted in this event. He summoned the wise men to try to search and get an inside information on his behalf that, of course, he might destroy this usurper to his throne as he saw it. But in verse 9, we pick up on the story of the wise men. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. They worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. This was the prophetic fulfillment of Psalm 76, verse 11. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around Him bring gifts, even wise men from afar. Worship Him, this infant King, because in faith you realize this Messiah, some way, somehow, is key to your salvation, and His exploits will defeat the enemies of your soul and usher you with Him into glory. He won't stay an infant forever after all. Where is he now? We see him pictured in Revelation 19, draped in robes, glowing with the power of God and dipped in his own blood and a sword flaming forth from his mouth, eyes of fire. And this bright horse, this instrument, implement of war, going forth as to battle. And those in his victory parade who have been conquered by him already, now conscripted into his army, and willingly so, as his warriors draped in the righteousness that his body and blood supplied, going forward through history, fulfilling the great commission, championing his name, declaring the terms and conditions of Judah, Israel, of Salem, and Zion. Praise his holy name. And so what do we do in light of the revelation of these truths? We bring him our gifts. We gather here next week with an offering of praise. We search through our valuables, as it were, the things that we love and appreciate, and we offer them to the Lord and even ourselves as a living sacrifice because in the light of the gospel, it is our reasonable service. Praise the Lord for songs like Psalm 76, which declare the exploits of our warlord. May they be inspiration to us and a call to worship that we might bring our gifts of praise even this season. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the testimony of your gospel marching forward through history, unaltered, unchanged, and accomplishing your perfect will in time. We praise you that in your gracious mercy, in your so- by your sovereign hand, you saw fit to ransom for yourself a collection of the redeemed who gather even in this place. May we be brought to our knees in awe and worship, Lord, as we consider these great truths. And may the announcement from old and even prophesied in the future of your glorious exploits revealed as you conquered our enemies and continue to show your superior force in conquering them. May may these truths move us to more consistently, more wholeheartedly, and more authentically, and with more joy, worship, and glorify and testify to your great name. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.